Chapter 4 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 4 The Drama of Illusion. It is proverbial that the average person will believe the evidence of his eyes more readily than the evidence of his ears. Beneath that sage and cogent phrase of current slang, you'll have to show me, there lurks indeed a psychologic law. A man may doubt what you have merely told him, but he is much less likely to doubt what he himself has seen. For this reason, those arts which make their appeal to the eye, like painting and sculpture, are more convincing to the average person than those which make their appeal to the ear, like poetry and music. If I say, in terms of the ungraphic art of prose, I have seen the most beautiful woman in the world, she is indeed the perfect woman, even as I ascend upon the wings of words and call her, with the elegance of Alfred Noyes, the white culmination of dreams of earth, I shall leave the average reader cold." But if I could lead the reader to that tiny room in Paris where the armless, radiant wonder leans a little backward through the air, and looks forth, illimitably serene, over the heads of the noisy and nervous visitors that swarm around, all impotent to interrupt her utter and divine quiescence, the reader would indeed believe me, conquered beyond question by the evidence of his eyes. The drama is a compound art, in that it appeals simultaneously to the eye and to the ear, it is at once an auditory art, like poetry and music, and a visual art, like painting and sculpture. But in different ages of the drama, the proportion to each other of those two appeals, the auditory and the visual, has been adjusted variously. If we review, with a single sudden sweep of mind, the whole history of the dramatic art, we shall see that the drama began by being principally auditory, and that it has grown more and more visual from age to age, until, today, for the first time, it makes its appeal mainly to the eye. Beneath this evolution we shall notice, as its motive, a constant and continual striving of the drama for more absolute, unquestionable credence. Aeschylus was striving to make you credit what he told you. Pinero is striving to make you credit what you see. The latter task, as we already have observed, is psychologically simpler, and therefore it is evident that the drama has gained conviction by the change. There is a certain profit in speculating as to whether, in attending the performance of a typical play of any chosen epoch, it would have been more or less disadvantageous to be blind or to be deaf. For instance, it becomes evident that a blind person would have lost comparatively little in the theatre of Dionysus, but would lose comparatively much in the Belasco theatre, whereas a deaf person would be able to follow the performance of The Return of Peter Grimm, but would not have been able to follow the performance of Oedipus King. Owing to the conditions of its representment, the Greek drama was required to rely principally on its appeal to the ear. In a theatre so open and so spacious, there could be no facial expression, no intimate and delicate gesticulation. The movements of the three actors were necessarily conventional and sculpturesque. The evolutions of the chorus were necessarily formal and measured. Conviction had to be conveyed by eloquence of speech, in poetry large and luminous and overwhelming, and an author, to succeed as a dramatist, had to be a master of sea surgings in the medium of verse. The great Elizabethan drama, as represented to us in the works of Shakespeare, 
thrilled and trembled at the parting of the ways. It was a drama devoid of any particularity of visual appeal, set without scenery on a bare platform, and played by actors surrounded on three sides by a public practiced more in listening than in looking. Yet it is evident that Shakespeare, more than any of his fellows, felt keenly the influence of time and place on character and action, for unlike the Greeks, he strove continually to make his auditors see, with that subtle sense that Hamlet called the mind's eye, the particular environment of place and time in which his action was imagined to occur. Since his theatre was not equipped to present this environment directly to the eye, he was required to force his auditors to imagine it by hurling into their ears descriptive passages so potent in visual suggestion as to require them to seem to see what, actually, they had only heard. What Shakespeare chiefly stood in need of, if we consider him for the moment solely as what we now call a producer of plays, was a direct, unmetaphorical medium for the expression of his visual imagination. Such a medium is offered by the modern stage, and the invention of this medium has had, thus far, two different results. Late in the nineteenth century, the newly devised equipment of the theatre to represent the look of actuality contributed, for the moment, to the spread of realism in the drama. Realism had already long been rampant in the other arts of narrative, and now it was at last enabled to broaden its dominion to include the stage. The drama was immediately dominated by a zest for imitating actuality. It strove to represent the very look of life, and to force a spectator to induce that desirable and necessary sense of truth which is the end of art, from the contemplation of a selected and arranged assortment of familiar facts. But until recently, the drama, weary at last of imitating actuality, has begun to strive to use the modern mechanical medium of concreteness to convey ideas essentially abstract, and is trying at last to employ the modern mastery of visual suggestion to convey a sense of the invisible. Ten or twenty years ago, our playwrights strove only to make their spectators believe what they saw before them on the stage. But now our playwrights strive, by visual suggestion, to make their spectators imagine much more than what they actually see. Paradoxical as it might seem to a merely aloof and theoretic contemplation, the mechanical and concrete particularity of the contemporary stage has begun to minister to the rise of a new mysticism in the drama, a mysticism which, for the present, finds its fullest expression in that morning star of the new era of romance and poetry which seems destined soon to overwhelm the drama, the elusive and imaginative Maeterlinck. In Sister Beatrice, for example, Monsieur Maeterlinck, being an author of this present age, relies frankly on the harmonious collaboration of the designer of scenery and costumes, the stage director, and, most of all, the electrician of the theatre, for the complete conveyance of his imagined and designed effect. But, by means of all these martial media for visual suggestion, he contrives to lure the spectator airily aloft to a region where he wings his way among invisibilities. We may regard it as the ultimate and utter triumph of the drama of illusion that, precisely because its medium of expression is more concrete, it is better endowed than the drama of any other age to symbolize ideas that are essentially abstract. By mastering the means of visual representment, the drama has learned at last to embody, vividly and convincingly, a sense of the invisible. This is an artistic triumph that was difficult for Sophocles and Shakespeare, but which, owing to the physical evolution of the theatre, is comparatively easy for M. Maeterlinck. Granted the great advantage of the mechanical equipment of the modern stage, a man of comparatively small imagination may make the public see more, and in consequence believe more, 
than many a giant of imagination in an age of the merely auditory drama. No one, for example, would believe the story of The Return of Peter Grimm if you merely told it to him, even if you told it in language as eloquent as that of Sophocles or Shakespeare. But Mr. David Belasco easily compels from his spectators an artistic credence of his play, during the brief period, at least, while they are watching it, by the mechanical, but nonetheless enthralling, expedient of forcing them to believe the evidence of their eyes. Considered as a literary composition, the return of Peter Grimm does not offer any notable elucidation of life, nor does it even embody an especially imaginative searching of the mystery of death, but considered as a fabric for the theatre, it offers a very remarkable instance of the technical triumph of the drama of illusion, the most remarkable, in fact, that has been set before our eyes in recent years. It conveys with absolute concreteness an idea that is essentially abstract, and it succeeds, by a mastery of visualization, in convincing the spectator that he is seeing the invisible. The play is designed to embody that spiritualistic theory of the persistence of personal energy after death, which, in recent years, has been deemed worthy of thorough scientific investigation by the Society for Psychical Research. According to this theory, the liberated soul retains its human individuality, and hovering regretfully about the scenes of its foregone activities on earth, strives to communicate, through the entranced minds of spiritualistic mediums, with its former relatives and friends. The accumulated scientific evidence in support of this hypothesis, in spite of its vastly bulk, is utterly unsatisfactory, and looked at a priori, the theory seems extremely unimaginative. The maintenance of human individuality after bodily death has never yet been proved in all the centuries of searching, even though it has been assumed as an axiom in many of the great religions of the world. But even if we accept it as a fact, it would be pitifully unimaginative to assume that a soul set free by death to range the boundless universe should still be tethered to that twirling inconsiderable grain of dust we call our world. That a soul at last enfranchised to illimitable possibilities of experience should find no loftier application for its energies than to try to talk in human terms about temporal trivialities with souls still body-bound and anchored to the earth. This is neither the time nor the place for a detailed philosophic argument against the spiritualistic theory, and my present purpose is merely to indicate that the thesis which Mr. Belasco has selected as the basis of his play, though it seems to appeal to many minds at present and is often popularly dallied with, is by no means easy to believe. All the more remarkable, therefore, as a technical triumph of the drama of illusion, is the fact that Mr. Belasco succeeds in compelling an artistic acceptance of the thesis throughout the presentation of his play, and there is no denying that he does succeed. Mainly by his mastery of the subtle art of lighting, he lays siege to the emotions of the spectator, and conquers credence for his story. The eye is captivated by an overwhelming visual illusion. At no previous period in the history of the drama could such a play have been successfully produced, and it deserves to be studied as a signal triumph of the modern visual art of stage direction. End of section 4. Recording by Todd.